So I want you to imagine for a moment a room filled with people, filled with everyone you know. So your family, yeah, I mean, start from your closest circle, right? Your family, you know, your friends, uh, and then kind of move out from there. So people in your church, maybe uh, college friends, high school friends, you know, other people that you've known, and then all the way at like your coworkers, your acquaintances, just everybody you know. It's just, it's just a room filled with people. And in this room, people are kind of just shouting things out, right? So somebody says, this pizza is amazing. And somebody says, coronavirus sucks. And somebody says, I'm stuck in traffic. And somebody says, you know, I just got engaged. And somebody says, you know, injustice is happening. And somebody says, you know, uh, I hate my job. Like there's all these things that people are saying. And um, they're all together, but nobody's really talking to each other. Everyone's just kind of saying stuff. And all those people have their own rooms too. So they're in and out of your room and they're in their room. And they're just, there's just all these overlapping rooms of people saying things out loud. But nobody is really talking to one another directly. And if they are, then they're doing it in earshot of everybody else listening. So that's social media, <laughs> what I've just described. That is what social media is. Now, when I put it like that in those terms, it sounds a little weird because you would never probably do that. You would never be in a room full of people where no one is talking to another person and everyone's just kind of shouting things out to anybody who is willing to listen to them. But that's what social media is. And we're so used to it that that doesn't seem weird to us anymore. Now, despite the promises of technology to connect us, they've actually almost always pulled us apart. You know, just think about like music, for example. Back in the day, back, back in the day, so not like when, I, I'm not saying back in the day, like when I was young, I mean, back in the day before any of us were born, the only way that you could engage music was like a live orchestra or some kind of concert. And then came the phonograph, like record player, right? And a record player would be back in the day bef before like a TV was around, it would be like the TV. It's like, oh, let's gather around the record player and let's play a record together. It would be kind of a more communal experience than it is now, right? And then there was the radio, and then came kind of the boom box, right? You could have your own private little thing, but it's still out loud for everyone. Then came the Walkman, right? I remember, I remember a Walkman. I won a Walkman when I was in like junior high, and I thought it was the most amazing thing. I was like, wow, I got a Walkman. I can listen with my own. Remember how the headphones were terrible? There's <laughs> just little, it would break if you would twist it a little too much. And I was like, wow, I can listen to my own music of my own choosing. I can put a tape in there. I can make my own little mixtape and put it in there and listen to it. And CD player, iPod right? And then you have your phone, and then you have Spotify. You can have your own radio station. I read this in a, in a, uh, a book. It's from this book called The Big Disconnect. It says, in the 21st century, glaringly white Apple earbuds inform all those who observe us in public that we are disinterested, musically inclined, non-threatening people, while uh, Bluetooth headphones, essentially, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Bluetooth headphones convey a slightly different, more aggressive message. Far too busy 
don't disturb. Don't dare disturb me. Right? This is the kind of message that we send now. Now, the, the title of the message today is The Power of Community IRL. And if you don't know what IRL stands for, it means in real life. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, our community, like our sense of community has become so disconnected that we need shorthand for the phrase in real life. Because we're so used to connecting, quote-unquote connecting. I should put quotes around it because I don't really think it is connecting. IFL, you know, in, in fake life. In a, in a digital world where sometimes, and a lot of this is used by like gamers because they'll, you know, you'll play a game with somebody and that's just a fictional world, right, where you're talking to someone that you've never met in real life. And so you have to specify, oh, I know this person, IRL, in real life, in actual life. That's how far we've, drift, we've drifted from the idea of connecting face to face. So as we begin to think about reopening you know, society and church. I know we've been distanced for a while now and we're beginning to interact with people IRL again. I'm hoping what we can do today is, is remember or perhaps reassess why community in real life matters and how we can engage that idea biblically. That's what we're going to talk about today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read from verses 19 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And this is God's word. And it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, a few things we're going to see from this text. And if you look at the text, you can see clearly that there are these three exhortations here, these let us's. Lettuces, lettuces, not lettuces. Let us. Um, so let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And then in verse, that's in verse 22. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And then verse 24, let us consider how to stir, one stir up one another to love and good works. Now, uh, so those really will be the three, the three points of this message. 
Okay, point number one, let us confidently, and this is how I would put it, put, let us confidently draw near to God because of Christ. Now the heart of the message of Christianity is laid, is laid out here. Right, he says in verse 19, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now the holy places, if you remember in, in Scripture, referring to the holy place, so pre-Jesus... Right? There was the temple that was, to be, that was where God resided. That was where the, the true, kind of the true presence of God was. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is we have confidence to enter that holy place, the true presence of God, the throne room of grace, because of the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Now remember again, the holy, the holiest place, the holy of holies, which would be at the center of the temple, was only allowed to be entered by the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And even when he went in that day, he would have to like super cleanse himself, like outwardly. He would have to go through this, this ceremonial cleansing, like his literal body, his clothes, everything, so that he could be as clean as possible. Now, obviously, that didn't really matter. It was symbolic of the idea that we had to be sinless before the presence of God. He would go in to make atonement for himself and for the nation of Israel. So he's the only guy that can go in there once a year. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the day, it was torn from top to bottom. Okay, so the, the, he, Jesus has opened the way the author of Hebrews is arguing here through the curtain that was his flesh that was torn for us. And he is a great high priest, a greater high priest. So whereas the, the high priest had to go in once a year to make atonement for the people of God, Jesus once for all, and this is what's argued in the book of Hebrews, he's a greater high priest because he makes atonement once for all in his own death. And he says, in light of this, let us draw near. So then verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near confidently. Now, what does it mean to draw near to God? What does that mean? What does it mean to draw near to God? Does it mean, is it something physical? Does it mean you have to get on your knees? Does it mean you have to go to church? You know, does it, like, is it some kind of physical act? Well, obviously not. It is not a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. It is a heart matter. It is a spiritual act of coming near to God. You can be sitting. You can be standing. You can be kneeling. You can be in a pew at church. You can be in front of your computer screen at home. But it is a spiritual act of drawing near, to, of coming to God, entering the throne room of God's grace. It is an active, volitional thing that you have to choose to do now, the only reason I bring that up is because it's easy for us to think that coming to church is drawing near to God or turning on your computer or going to life group or if you're doing these things or even opening your Bible, this is my drawing near to God. Now, it, that can be part of it, 
But it, the idea of actually drawing near is a separate spiritual act that you must engage in. Your heart and your mind, you have to be set on actually doing that. Have we done that? Did you do that today? Like coming into this, you know, socially distant service, were you thinking, okay, well, I want to draw near to God today. Or did you think it's Sunday, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to church. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, to, to zealously do it, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, he talks here about this evil conscience, and this evil conscience is our obstacle, our biggest obstacle in drawing near to God. It is a condemning conscience. So I would, I would say, I would posit that what really keeps us from drawing near to God now, sometimes it also involves those physical acts, right? Like we don't want to go to church because we don't want to draw near to God or we don't want to open our Bible because we don't want to draw near to God. We know that that's entailed there. And what actually keeps us from that is not, I think for most of us, particularly if you're a believer, it's not laziness. It is not indifference. It is your conscience, it is this sense of, I'm not good enough. And even if I do this, I'm not going to be good enough. Like, I'm not good enough to come into the presence of God. And we have to battle that. Now, I'll, I'm going to say a couple things. Now, I know a lot of us probably have been dealing with some of this guilt. Because so much has been exposed about the world and maybe even the way that we think about the world, maybe even what we think is important in the world. And so much suffering has been opened up for people, people getting sick, people dying, people losing jobs, you know, people facing oppression, people facing injustice. There's so much stuff happening in the world that sometimes what we can sense is just this overwhelming guilt. And that's what's driving us and that's kind of what's motivating us right now. And I thought about that and I think there are a couple of things, like how do we deal with this, this evil conscience? This conscience that is accusing us. Now conscience is a good thing, right? It, does, it, it, rec it helps us to recognize what sin is and to recognize when we're wrong. But the evil conscience is when it becomes so accusational to the point of where we feel like we can never be forgiven. We cannot accept God's forgiveness. Now I'm going to, Here's a couple things we have to remember, okay, to deal with this conscience. Um, first, remember that all sin is primarily an offense to God. Remember that all sin is primarily an offense to God. You remember the story of um, David and Bathsheba, right, in 2 Samuel 12? <clears throat> So just to summarize, we're not gonna we're not gonna read it, right? But just to summarize, basically what happens is, you know, David finally he like ascends to the throne, you know, he becomes king. David is the the paradigm of kings. He's the good king, right? Throughout all the rest of um, kings, and you know, if you if you look, they're gonna compare all the kings to David, and they're gonna say whether he's a he's a good king, uh, whether a king is a good king or a bad king based on David. 
But 2 Samuel 12 is about, it starts kind of when kings go off to war, David didn't. Right? So he stayed home. And then he falls into this temptation. He's tempted by Bathsheba. She's bathing on the roof. He calls her over. He commits adultery with her. And then, you know, she's married and her husband is at, in battle. He calls him back and basically tries to get, uh, because David impregnates Bathsheba, tries to get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to sleep with her wife, sleep with his wife, excuse me, so that, uh, you know, they won't know that David is the one who's impregnated her. So it says this is a real, like, messed up conspiracy that's kind of happening. He's abusing his power in the first place to get Bathsheba. Now he's abusing his power to kind of mess with Uriah. And then when Uriah, because he's such a good guy, doesn't do this because he's saying, I don't want to, you know, distract myself from the war, goes back out to war, and David essentially murders him. He says, all right, send him out far to the front line and then pull everybody back. Uriah dies. Okay, and David doesn't even recognize he's done anything wrong here. And then finally, in uh, 2 Samuel uh, you know, 12, 13, he's confronted by uh, Nathan, the prophet, and then who comes and kind of says, explains to him what he's done, tells this story. It's an allegory of what's happened to him, that there's this rich and powerful guy who steals like basically just the one sheep of this other like poor guy. And at the end, he's like, that's you. This is what you have done to Uriah. And what David says to Nathan when he realizes what he's done is he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's the first thing he recognizes. Why does that matter? Because for many of us, particularly in the world right now, we feel this guilt and we're, we're directing it primarily to people. And I have sinned against this people or that people. But all sin first primarily is against the Lord. We have to recognize that to deal with this guilty conscience because two, we have to recognize that all sin is forgiven by God first. It must be forgiven by God first for you to be able to deal with it. And that's what this passage is saying. Draw near to God. How? How can you deal with that guilty God? By remembering that everything is paid for by Jesus' work. Because if you try to draw near to God... On the basis of yourself saying, well, here's what I'm going to do. Or the basis of your future self saying, well, here's what I'm, I'm going to do. Here's what I've done or here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read and I'm going to pray or I'm going to fix it. I'm going to start being a good person. I'm going to start being aware, socially aware. I'm going to live a just life from now on. That's not going to work. The guilty conscience will eat away at you. Remember that we are standing on the foundation of the work of Jesus. Him. We have to start there. And I know it's like every man, it's like, okay, we're going to go to the gospel again. We're going to go back to the gospel. That has to be this. Yes, it has to. It's not because I'm not, I'm not the one putting it in there. It's in the Bible. If you read the Bible, it's everywhere. Everybody's going to always say that this is the basis. 
the, the, the authors of Scripture and the author of Scripture, God himself, is going to always come back and say, this is the most important thing. And lest you assume it and move past it and try to just think, oh, well, obviously the gospel. If you ever say, obviously the gospel, you've already started wrong. You already started in the wrong place. Because there's nothing obvious about it. It has to hit us like a ton of bricks every time when we draw near to God. Every morning. That is what's going to create that desperation in you. Every morning to say, I need that salvation again today, Jesus. This is a quote from, uh, it's from Bloodlines. I have a couple from Bloodlines today. So consider it a preview or a <laughs> advertisement for the book. I believe that the gospel, the good news of Christ, crucified in our place to remove the wrath of God and provide forgiveness of sins and power for sanctification, is our only hope for the kind of racial diversity and harmony that ultimately matters. If we abandon the fullness of the gospel to make racial and ethnic diversity quicker or easier, we create a mere shadow of the kingdom in imitation, and we lose the one thing that can bring about Christ-exalting diversity and harmony. Any other kind is an alluring snare. For what does it profit a man if he gains complete diversity and loses his own soul? Wait, leave it up for a second. If you say, look, look, look where he says, is our only hope for the kind of racial diversity and harmony that ultimately matters. You can put anything there is our only hope for the proper view of work and rest that matters, for the kind of generational healing that matters, for reconciliation of families that matters, for justice that matters, for proper theology and application of money that matters, for helping the poor and oppressed that matters, that ultimately matters. If we abandon the fullness of the gospel to make any of those things quicker or easier, we're creating a shadow, an imitation. That's how important the gospel is. That's how broad and how deep the gospel is. It hits all of that. And so when we, we have to always start there, especially with regard to our own heart when we want to engage anything, any of this stuff. We cannot repent or bring about God's kingdom motivated by guilt or fear or insecurity or for that matter, frustration or anger. Um, true repentance of sin comes from already having been forgiven. Not from having to prove that you deserve to be forgiven. And if you are motivated by guilt or fear or insecurity or frustration or anger, I guarantee you what you will breed is that same thing. You will breed fear. If you're motivated by fear, you'll breed fear. If you're motivated by insecurity, you will create insecurity in others. If you're, if you're motivated by frustration, you will create frustration. If you're motivated by anger, you'll create anger. If you're motivated by guilt, you will create guilt. If you are motivated by the freedom of Christ, by the liberation of sin that comes from not you thinking you are worthy, 
but from this wholehearted belief that Christ is worthy and his sacrifice is sufficient, then that is what you will breed in others. That's what they will believe and they will experience that freedom as well. Let us draw near to God with confidence in Christ and his work in the gospel. And I want to even say, before I move on, okay, right now, you can do that right now. You can draw near to God right now because it is a spiritual act of volition for you yourself. If you want to draw near to God right now, just do it right now. Just say, God, I don't know how I started this, but I wasn't really here to draw near to you. I was here thinking about something else. I have multiple things up on my computer right now. Like I'm thinking about something else. But if you want to draw near to God, you can do that right now. Say, God, right now I want to draw near to you. I want to sit under this teaching right now. I want to hear from you. I want to connect with you. And he hears that. And we can do that. No matter what's happened this week, you may have had a terrible week, but the work of Christ is sufficient. So that's number one. Draw near, confidently draw near to God. Here's two. Let us cling desperately to our hope in Christ. So back to verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I don't want to dwell too long on this, but what I will say is we are living in an increasingly divisive and pessimistic world. Part of that is because so much of our lives is lived, IFL, in fake life. And there have been tons of studies. I don't, you know, I'm not even going to go too deep into this, but because we know it, we feel it, right? Online's not the same as in person. You can be a lot colder. You're not really concerned with what another person's thinking. You just want to get your own point across. That's what it's all about. It becomes an echo chamber. Everyone seeks out the information that they want. They want to hear what they want to hear. People aren't interested in actually having their mind changed, right? It's just a ton of just yelling at each other. That's what it usually becomes. And what the, what the Bible is saying is we need to hold fast. We need to cling desperately. That's how I'd put it. And if you, you know, if you look at the translation of the words, and even if you, the idea, it's in present tense, it kind of gives this implication that it is this ongoing thing that we have to do every day. We have to continuously cling to this hope that we have in Christ unwaveringly. Without wavering literally means that does not bend. That's what we need today. We need that hope. Um, so here's another quote. I'm going to give you one more from Bloodlines. It says, Oh, that God would raise up against all self-centeredness and flimsy loyalties and undisciplined devotion, men and women who sustain a great cause. Not the way adrenaline does, but the way the heart does. Adrenaline produces a spurt of needed energy, then lets the body drop. But the heart keeps on pumping life into the body in good times and hard times, winter and summer, sad and happy, strong and weak, sick and well. Oh, for more coronary Christians in the cause of racial justice, not just adrenaline Christians. 
Not just adrenaline Christians, coronary Christians. You got like, um, you guys know like Fast and Furious, the Fast and the Furious, the franchise. You must know. They've made like a hundred movies. Fast and the Furious, right? And you guys know, I mean, you must have seen at least one of them, right? <laughs> There's so many. But when they race and they're racing and then they have like NOS, right? You guys, you guys know what NOS is? It is a, that nitrous oxide. It's like you push the button and, you know, it, it, the, the car speeds up and it like flies. And I don't, know if you, I don't know if you remember the first one, okay? The first one, uh, you know, like Paul Walker's character, he loses the race. Why? Because he uses his NOS too early. Right? He's like, she uses it, and then it, what happens? It runs out, and then at the end, he just gets, he gets beat. Right? And some of us, I feel like what we're doing, our Christian life, amounts to just like spamming the NOS button. That's all we have. Like NBA 2K, you got turbo on all the time, right? Your guy's going to get tired. He's going to get tired. He's not going to last like that. It's like, you know what? I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm not going to work. Like, I'm not going to have any discipline or devotion in my life, right? Like, those fences are not going to be set up. But when something happens, I'm just going to start spamming this NOS button and see how fast I can go. Maybe I can win this race. You're not going to win the race like that. Adrenaline will only get you so far. At some point, you have to grow up. And you have to be like, you know what? I'm not going to only care when something happens. I'm not going to only care when it becomes popular on social media and it becomes a big deal and all of a sudden I have to think about it. But the rest of, my, the, rest of the time, this is not going to be built into my life. Oh, we're going to do like a Bible study on this, which is going to take like 10 weeks of my life. I'm not going to do that. That's way too much. 10 weeks out of my 80 or 90 years on this planet, I can't invest that much. I can put up a black square. You know, I can do, I can do something that's only going to take a little. And I'm not saying like, oh, that's wrong if you did that. I did that. I'm not saying like that's bad. I'm just saying there needs to be more than that, right? Like there has to be more than just this engagement in one moment. And I'm not just talking about, you know, racial justice either. I'm talking about all the, there are plenty of causes in our lives. And yet for some reason, we, we're not even, that's not even on our radar. We're so consistently talking about what does God want me to do with my life? And all that entails is a job. Like you're not thinking about what's in the world and where are their needs and where can I make an impact for the gospel. You're only thinking about who am I? What's going to make me happy? How am I going to get paid? What's a good schedule? Like that's it, right? And we keep searching for new ones of those and we never stop to ask the question, is the reason that this isn't working because this was never meant to give me the kind of purpose that I actually was created for. God didn't create you for a job. He created you for a cause. A great cause. A great gospel-fueled God-glorifying cause that is far greater than you, that you are a cog in, but a happy cog to be a part of. That's where your purpose is. 
Now, how can you do that? How can we do that? Because we kind of do, like, how is it possible to endure in this kind of work as a coronary Christian? Well, you need that hope. Hope, optimism, is what's going to drive you toward that vision. Hope in Christ. The belief that if God could turn the worst evil ever to his glory and for our good, the death of Jesus, then he will do that in our lives. There is hope. God is doing something in the world. Now, quick, quick couple quick applications here. Okay, how, do you, how do you live a life filled with hope and optimism? You know, particularly if you're, a, you're already like a cynical person and you know it, right? I'm a little bit that way too. Uh, God has done a lot of work. I'll say God has done a ton of work in my heart with regard to that. Because if you generally just don't trust people, you don't trust society, you don't trust the government, you don't trust, you know, news, like you don't trust anything, and that's kind of how you are, and that's how you're living your life, then it's going to be hard to endure in this work. And I would say, here's just a couple things. Okay. Let your heart be driven by the good news more than cable news. Okay, here's something that I try to do every day, right? I don't open Facebook or Twitter or any social media or news or anything before I read, the, read or listen to the Bible. Okay, you know, the listening apps come in handy there if my day is kind of off and I'm already kind of going and I just pop in my headphones and I listen to a little bit of, you know, I listen to scripture. I try to spend some time in prayer. Because you need that. That good news. Like, you need to cling to that good news because it creates hope. Secondly, sow hope. Sow hope. You know, last week how we talked about sowing things. Sow hope. Whenever you gather with people. Right? And I'm not, say, I'm not saying like a fake hope, you know, I'm not saying just be like try to make everything pretty and just, you know, downplay people's uh, hurts or their griefs or their circumstances. Because we, oh, of course, we grieve when people grieve. We should, but we have to grieve in hope. All of these things, it says, let us. So it's not something that we are, that we have to do alone. We would never be able to maintain it alone by ourselves. But it says, let us, let us together do this. So last thing here, let us consider one another how to stir love in good works. Let us consider one another how to stir love and good works. And I've put it that way specifically because if you look at the original Greek, uh, the way that the words are ordered, now, you know, it's hard to, to translate directly Greek to English because a lot of, it's not going to make sense. It's going to be bad English, right? But if you look at it, the way that the words are laid out and in Greek, it is important because you put emphasis on the words that are at the front of the sentence. So grammar is determined by the conjugations, but, you know, the word order determines the importance. Uh, what it says is consider one another Unto the stirring of love and good works. That would be kind of how it's literally phrased. So the direct object of the verb consider, and consider means to notice or to pay attention to or to examine carefully that word in the Greek. 
So, so notice or pay attention to examine carefully the direct object of that verb. Sorry I'm doing grammar if you guys aren't really into grammar, if you're not a, not a grammar nerd. But the direct object of that verb is one another. So it's not really, I mean, the it's okay. The translation we have is not, it's not bad because that is the idea. But really what it says is examine each other how you can stir love and, and good works. And stir is this idea of like this eliciting this strong emotion, this conviction, right? This stimulation, motivation. Consider one another. Here's the main difference between community, IFL, and IRL. Community, IFL, in fake life, in the digital world. And you know what? I'll extend that to... I don't think it just means in the digital, like I'm not just referring to the, in the digital world. When I say community, you know, in fake life, I think it's also what's up here. It's our expectation of what community is supposed to be. That community revolves around you. And it is why we like social media. It's why we like digital barriers to our gathering because you're in control. Right? You can stop somebody at a certain point. You can share only what you want to share. You can be perceived in a certain way. It revolves around you. Community IRL in real life, and I mean both in, in person and when, when this false expectation of what community is, is removed. And we are forced to confront community, and I'll just say people, as they exist in the real world. It does not revolve around you. You recognize very quickly. It's not supposed to. It's not meant to. So I have this last quote for you guys. Not from Bloodlines, but another book. Um... It's a little bit longer, but I'm going to read the whole thing. So perhaps it's not going too far to say that we love social media because it comes without the hazards and commitments of a real-world community or because we really harbor a deep disappointment with human beings who are flawed and forgetful, needy and unpredictable in ways that machines are wired not to be. It is safer to approach one another from behind a machine. Social media feels like a safe way to offer ourselves to others. Th think about that for a second, because I really want you to assess whether or not this is true. Do you like social media in some sense? Because it's safer. It guards you from this disappointment. I'm assuming if you've been socially distanced that you haven't had a ton of conflict, right? Except for the people in your home. Like if you're meeting with people through computer screens or your phone, you probably are not getting into like huge fights, right? I'm just assuming because you're kind of guarded from that. You don't have to have conflict. You can just be like, I got to go. <laughs> like, you could turn off your audio or your video. Like, like you can leave anytime. You're not actually physically present, and you can't really feel each other. Like, you're guarded. And in many ways, I think we like that. It's convenient. You only, like, you have to schedule a meeting. Someone can't just come up to you and talk to you. Let's continue reading. 
because I was on a phone screen, testifies one writer, I could put myself out for virtual inspection and validation while remaining in control, remote from the possibility of physical rejection. Online, we offer up our lives in stories forged by self-interpretation, and only rarely, only rarely is our interpretation called into question. Isn't that true? In person, however, our interpretations can be pushed back, questioned, and challenged, all for our own good. Let's, let's read on. The, the, there's a little bit more here. Friction is the path to genuine authenticity, and no amount of online communication can overcome a lack of real integrity. We must be real with the people God puts into our lives. We must tell them the truth. We must be honest at school. We must be wise with our money. We must be trusted friends. We must be reliable at work. The world needs what we must be, God-centered, joyful, and trustworthy men and women. We are not flawless. We are fallen repenters who require relational friction to grow and mature. We are authentic believers who are committed to replacing easy relationships with authentic ones. From this embodied authenticity, the gospel spreads. Eye-to-eye authenticity is the key to empathy, humility, and trust in our relationships. And these are skills we all need. That's what we need. And part, part of the reason I'm saying this is that we need to gather. We do. You know, and I completely understand social distancing and being safe because we need that too. But I hope we, I hope we know that the value of this goes beyond like well, I, yeah, I mean, I wish I could see people. I wish I could give somebody a hug. Look, and that's important too. But it's very difficult. I think even as we continue to, to use technology and these mediums that have been afforded to us, which are great, which I, I praise God for, we need to recognize that there are these barriers exist to us being authentic, to us being honest, to us even having a self-perception that's accurate. In the text, it says the habit of some is to go away from this gathering. Do you feel that ever? This, this desire, this pulling away from the gathering, you want to disappear, you can run, you can hide if you want but I would tell you that that's not from God. In the gathering in church, do you ever feel like, well, that's not how I would do it? I hope you do. Because that's good. Because it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about God. We need to all come under and be pulled away from some of the things that we think are necessary. So that we have to look at God. We have to remember what the core things are, what the important things are. Our gathering, as we consider one another and not ourselves, it has to lead to the stirring of love and good works. That is the purpose of our gathering, not to have a vibrant social life, not so that things are convenient for you, not so even so you feel special. That's not the purpose. It is to stir 
and to be stirred by one another to love and good works. That is why we gather, and that is why the word is central to our gathering, and that is why we come together to pray, and that is why we come together to study the word of God, and that is why we come under and we'll study books together, and we'll gather in our life groups, and we'll share, and it has to come around God and Christ and the gospel. Because ultimately we want to stir and be stirred by one another to love and good works. So let me quickly summarize here in closing just the three things we went over today. Confidently draw near to Christ in the gospel. Secondly, cling to hope in Christ every day. Thirdly, consider one another. Consider one another how to stir love and good works. And I just want to show you, I'm going to show you this picture in closing. This picture, I don't know if you know what that is, right? What this picture is, is just leave it up, Isaac. What this picture is, 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 it is, it's our house. We had um, underneath our molding, our, our base molding, it was mold, right? So that's mold, it's black mold that's growing like, that was growing in our house. And I'm leaving it up because it's gross. <laughs> and, um, you know, and it was like all over, you know, down here. It's just like one of the many pictures I took. But, um, you know, because it, it got wet there. And then there was like this, I don't know what was happening. There, something was leaking somewhere. And then it got into our house. And then we didn't really know, but it appeared a little bit wet. And then we had to remove it. We, we called the guys that came. They removed it. And then this, this mold was what was underneath. And it was kind of all around. And there, potentially there could be more mold under the carpet and some other places. Like we still have to search. And um, just, just leave it up, Isaac. Don't even take it down. <laughs> so the, the thing is like, And th this is the reason, okay? I'm like forcing you to just look at this mold, okay? Because we're in a moment right now. We're in a moment right now, you know, of exposure, right? What's, what's being exposed is the gap between IFL and IRL, you know, and I don't just mean digital and in person. I mean what we think, what we thought life was and what life really is. Like what is exposed is our mess. And what we want to do is run, right? What we want to do is quickly get this photo off the screen and quickly cover up and quickly get back to, you know, check in to the way things were. Right? That's, that's what we want to do. Like, that, all coronavirus has done for many of us, we feel like, oh, this doesn't matter. What does this matter? My life has barely been changed. And if you think that, I'm just thinking, but what about what's been exposed in the world? <clears throat> what about all the people who are suffering or who have lost jobs? What about all the people who are dying and have died? or are sick, or the many who will not be able to leave their homes for a long time still because perhaps health conditions, perhaps their age. What about people who are facing oppression and injustice? Because to clean up something like mold, you have to 
you know, so we had to pull off other stuff, and now we have to probably pull off more stuff, and we have to go into the wall, and we have to go under the carpet, because only a little bit's showing. That part got cleaned up. And then there's more stuff that has to get cleaned up. And part of me wants to say, all right, you could take it down, I think. Part of me wants to say, like, oh, but I don't want to do all that stuff, because that's, like, complicated. Right? I don't want to get up into that and like dig it up and I don't want it to be messy. I don't want to have like relational conflict with people. I don't want to reassess and reevaluate what I think is important. I don't want to do all that stuff. Like I don't want to think about how I'm spending my money and whether that really makes sense right now or what I'm praying about or change my daily disciplines or change my schedule or change. Like I don't want to do all that stuff. I just want the world to quickly go back to what it was. Because it's summer, and I want to go on vacation, and I want to have a good time, and I want to hang out with my friends, and none of that's bad. But if we want to just quickly go back without digging up, if we want to just board that back up and paint over it and just move on, church, that's, that's not it. I really hope, I'm praying every day that in a couple of years we won't look back to this time and think that was a blip. That was a nothing. It was inconvenient for a couple months and then my life just went back exactly the way it was. I hope it is the time that we look back and we think, that's when I became a coronary Christian. That's when I took up the cause and my life became about the cause of Christ and not just my own convenience and comfort. Let us engage in that church. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your love and your grace that covers over all of our sin, God. Everything. Everything that we are guilty of. Everything that we've been through. There is such a powerful forgiveness at your feet, God, and in light of that forgiveness, there is such a powerful hope that we can experience every day knowing that you have this great purpose and cause for us to live out in our forgiven state, God, that you have this love and good work for each of us that you want all of us to encourage, to stir one another toward. I pray, God, that you would help us to embrace life as it is. <coughs> in light of that love and in light of that hope and in light of that community which you've given us, God, that purpose which you've given us, strengthen us, empower us, encourage us, fill us, God, that we might be a community that doesn't kind of try to live up to some false expectation in our minds, but one that embraces all of our brokenness and yet hopes and has a vision for something far greater than what we could accomplish by our own means. We entrust it to you, God. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.